0: Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at the Kerrang! issue of October 19th, 1996, £1.50. And for some reason on the cover of Kerrang! this week, they have removed um, Planet Rock every Wednesday. Don't know why they've done that. Uh, Maybe it was an editorial decision. That's interesting, isn't it? The cover stars for this week's Kerrang! are Korn. I was possessed by the devil. Korn. Inside America's most twisted band. Also, Alice in Chains, Guitar Whore for Hire, Metallica, Em All, Pearl Jam, US Fan Riot, Marilyn Manson, Scary New LP, plus Wild Hearts, Cathedral, No Doubt, Reef, Skunk Anansi, Corrosion and Conformity, and Prodigy. And, also, a free tape. A yes, another free tape. 12 tracks by Reef, Ash, Typer Negative, Paradise Lost, and more. Also, it says on the cover, if your copy of Supersonic Volume 2 is missing, see the governor in the store. This tape is not available outside the UK. Sorry, it's the law. So, last week, uh, when you are listening to this, uh, I released a bonus episode of uh, podcast, which I did with the lovely chaps over uh, free with this month's issue. Uh, that was for Supersonic Tape 1, uh, Volume 1, which came out with the kerrang that we reviewed last week. Well, also... This week, because there's a tape, we've done another podcast. Yep, we've uh, been absolutely racking them up. So this week, alongside this podcast, and it will be out after this podcast, there'll be another bonus episode where uh, we review the Supersonic Volume 2 tape. So I'm not going to go into that tape here. I'm not going to go tell you what's on it and uh, tell you anything about it, really, because we've got an entire podcast dedicated to it. Uh, I will say one thing now about these supersonic tapes. That first one especially uh, because it's, we've already done it and talked about it really really important for me. That was the first time I heard Feeder with the song Shade and also uh, good God by Korn was on it which you know was just a unknown to the track. Uh, there's also other great stuff on there but those for me were the two that just really were sort of like uh, defining defining songs. On, those, on that tape and ones that I just played over and over and over and over again. Absolutely brilliant. If you'd like to get in contact with us here at Kerrangback Issues, we can be contacted as always via Instagram, Kerrangback Issues, Twitter Kerrangpod and email issues at gmail.com. We've got another stacked great issue of the magazine. So let's crack right into it. So this issue of the magazine was created with the following stimulants. Poor old Mike Peak and his unfeasibly dodgy lug holes, Melon Yogurt, Ruby in the Dust, Titanic London live shows from Metallica, The Prodigy and Rocket from the Crypt, Supersonic Volume 2, fabulously free with this week's issue, Baked Potatoes, Reefs Lunchtime Handy Bash, Paul Elliott's shamefully bum-licking behaviour on the road with Fluffy, Guna, You're a Disgrace. The new albums from Marilyn Manson Korn and The Mighty Danzig. Having the decorators in, Phone calls from Jerry Cantrell and Free Colours Red. Next, the Richie Manick documentary on Channel 4. 1, We start this week where we always begin news. Coal Jam's troubled American tour in support of the No Code album turned into a nightmare when fans rioted during a show in Hartford, Connecticut. The Seattle Stars' US dates have been blighted by a series of problems, mainly due to ticket distribution. The band's refusal to deal with a giant Ticketmaster organization has meant that they've been using alternative methods of selling tickets, which has led to accusations of incompetence from fans all over the country. But these problems paled into insignificance following the Hartford show. According to eyewitnesses, fighting broke out between ticket holders and police as fans attempted to climb over barricades in a bid to get closer to the band during the Hartford gig. Three policemen and an undisclosed number of fans were injured during the chaotic scenes and dozens of people were arrested. All this happened just a few days after the band show at Randall's Island in New York was disrupted by rowdy elements in the crowd. A visibly distressed Eddie Vedder reacted to the problems at the Randall's Island show by threatening fans from the stage, if someone dies tonight, This will be the last Pearl Jam show ever. So far, there has been no reaction from Pearl Jam to the Hartford Riot, but it must throw the band's future US touring plans into serious doubt. However, their upcoming UK and Ireland shows will go ahead as planned. The band will play Cork Mill Arena October 24th, Dublin Point 26th, London Wembley Arena 28th and 29th, uh, support comes from the Fastbacks. Lodestar were unable to play the first few dates of the Kerrang! Twister tour last week when vocalist Hypham Al Sayed contracted a severe throat infection. However, the other members of Lodestar were present at all the shows and apologized to fans in person. On a happier note, feeder Lodestar and the Crazy Gods of Endless Noise have decided to undertake signing sessions on all remaining nights of the tour. You'll find them signing by the tour's merchandise encounter following their individual sets. The Wild Hearts have taken everyone by surprise by scheduling the release of what could prove to be the final album for their old label East West next month. With speculation still rife as to whether the band actually exists anymore, a compilation album called The Best Of The Wild Hearts will hit the streets on November 18. The final track listing hasn't been fully confirmed yet but Karen can exclusively re- reveal that the record will include the following caffeine bomb sucker punch TV Tan, Justin Lust. I want to go where the people go, my baby is a headfuck, greetings from Shitsville, red light, green light, sick of drugs, turning American, and if life is like a love bank, I want an overdraft. However, the record will not feature any unreleased material. Although the Wild Hearts themselves were apparently not actively involved in putting the album together, East West insists that not only are they fully aware of the project, but that they've offered no objections to its release. The record company further maintained that this compilation has been in the planning stages for some time and was agreed between band and the label before they parted in acrimonious circumstances. But one thing that the album will surely do is raise the question as to whether the Wild Hearts have any sort of future. Ginger and co have been keeping a very low profile in recent weeks, refusing to comment on whether they will stick together and record a new album, or go their separate ways. At the time of going to press, there have been no official comment from the Wild Hearts camp on either the compilation album or their future plans. Ash are to celebrate the end of an amazing year with a handful of Christmas shows. Kerrang can exclusively reveal that the Irish chair will play at the point in Dublin on December 27th, supported by 60 foot dolls. And expect, uh, expected that at least two dates in Britain will be confirmed shortly for late December, including one night at London's Brixton Academy. But please note, tickets for the UK dates are not yet on sale. As soon as they're confirmed, you'll read about it in Kerrang. Ash's debut album, 1977. Has now been officially certified platinum, having sold more than 300,000 copies in the UK. Stone Temple pilots have confirmed a 30 day US tour, but they've made the announcement before troubled singer Scott Weiland has been given the official all clear to end his enforced stay at a drug rehab centre. The dates, which will bring to an end a year long nightmare for the San Diego Stars, are due to begin on November 4th and will take the band right up to Christmas. Incredibly, Wyland will only know if he can leave his drugs rehab clinic less than a week before the tour is due to start, when he will appear before a Los Angeles County Court. The band are adamant that Wyland will be discharged and feel confident that the tour will go ahead. If for some reason Wyland's rehab program is extended, it's expected that all of the dates will have to be scrapped. Whether the pilots will extend the tour into '97 and make it over to the UK remained open to speculation at this point. The band's last UK gig was at London's Brixton Academy in November 1994. Van Halen's eagerly awaited reunion with original vocalist David Lee Roth has been canceled. Roth broke the news in an open letter to the press laying the blame uh, at the door of guitarist Eddie Van Halen, accusing him and the band, drummer Alex Van Halen and bassist Michael Anthony of deception. Roth and the band patched up their differences several months ago, when the ex frontman was asked to sing on two new VH tracks. Can't get this stuff no more on me, why it's magic. For inclusion on the upcoming compilation LP, Best of Van Halen Volume One, out on Warner Brothers on uh, October 28th. A full-blown reunion seemed certain when the four appeared at the MTV Awards in New York last month. Now Roth claims he was hoodwinked into this public appearance. I told Edward, I didn't uh, want to imply by our presence that we were back if it was just a quickie for old time's sake. I apologise to my fans. Alex Van Halen dismissed Roth's accusations as ridiculous. But he has confirmed to Kerrang that the band have recruited a new singer, Extreme's Gary Jerome. Van Halen have already recorded two songs with the Boston-based singer Xtreme. This week confirmed that they have split after 10 years. US Mail. And we start this week with Don Kay in New York and he says a little bit more about the uh, news that extreme have split up uh, which is you know kerrang actually just give them a small line at the end of a van halen bit so it's actually good that they get uh, at least a couple of paragraphs here the news doesn't mean as much in 1996 as it would have done a few years ago but there will still be some people disappointed to hear that boston's extreme have split up the band will probably be remembered mainly for the sugary ballad more than words an international hit in 1991 and for a time They were one of the biggest rock bands on the planet. But they've been in steady decline since their third album, The Ludicrously Pretentious Three Sides to Every Story, was released in 1992. The foursome's last album, 94's Waiting for the Punchline, virtually sunk without trace. Still, three members of the band aren't exactly idle at the moment. Vocalist Gary Cherone has just been confirmed as a new man in Van Halen. He's already recorded two songs with them and will front the band on next year's world tour. And guitarist Nuno Bettencourt will shortly release a solo album on a and Meanwhile, drummer Mark Mangini has found employment in Steve Vai's band, which just leaves bassist Pat Badger, who, uh, well, according to official sources, he will be confirming his intentions shortly. Still in Boston, the Aerosmith saga grows weirder by the day. The band's new album is still far from finished, with the release date on Columbia now officially postponed until next year. But that's only part of the problem. According to industry gossip over here, each member of Aerosmith has their own personal therapist and there's also a separate one for the band as a collective. If that wasn't bad enough, every time Aerosmith have a band meeting, all six therapists have to be present. Talk about confusing. In the meantime, LifeWire frontman Steven Tyler has been telling everyone that recent stories that he'd fallen back into his old drug habits are completely false. Glad to hear it. Legendary American crooner Pat Boone has caused shockwaves over here by recording an album of classic heavy metal cover versions. Just to put this into perspective for you, Boone is 62 years old, was at the height of his career in the 50s and is sickeningly clean cut. So it's not easy to imagine him singing a Guns N' Roses song, which he does. Next week, Frank Sinatra goes grunge. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. Van Halen fans are apparently furious with their heroes. Why? Because original singer David Lee Roth is not back in the band on any permanent basis and the reunion tour that many eagerly anticipated will now not happen. America's online Van Halen folder is currently full of comments from fans, many of them very hurtful. In fact, there has been such an outcry from Van Halen fans who feel they've been let down by the band that Eddie Van Halen's wife, actress Valerie Bertinelli, felt compelled to jump to her hubby's defence. Setting the record straight, she posted the following statement on the internet. I can tell you for a fact that Ed does not have an intense hatred for Dave. Meantime, Van Halen themselves held a press conference last week during the F Music Fest in Los Angeles, where they confirmed Extreme's Gary Cherone as the new singer, although a few minor legal niceties still have to be sorted out. So why did Van Halen choose Cherone? Because he has no hint of LSD, lead singer disease, Quip Teddy. When asked why the band had appeared at the MTV Awards in New York recently with Dave Roth, if they had no intention of taking the reunion further than two new songs on the upcoming Best Of Album, Eddie just said, our label Warner Brothers asked us to do it, so now we know. Finally this week, we join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Let's hope he doesn't talk about Van Halen. Satan's little helpers, those lovable chaps, the super suckers, have just returned to the States after their glorious bid to drink Russia Dry and Vodka, and they've teamed up with another like-minded renegade rocker for an upcoming record. The suckers can already count country music outlaw willie nelson as both a good buddy and recording partner now they've joined forces with country rock singer songwriter and all-round wild man steve earl during a three-day recording session they collaborated on a new song for a forthcoming sub-pop release as well as covering keith richards before they make me run the super suckers also guest on the track new york city which will be featured on earl's new album and sources close to the super suckers claim the partnership went so well Earl is already planning a return trip to Seattle to lay down more tracks with the band. Pearl Jam received a surprise gift when they performed recently in Toronto, a case of champagne from, of all people, veteran Canadian rockers Rush. Sadly though, drummer Neil Peart, bassist, vocalist Geddy Lee, and guitarist Alex Lifeson didn't actually turn up to the show themselves. One onlooker swore he saw Eddie Vedder carry a couple of bottles of the bubbly stuff into support band The Fast Baxes dressing room where the Pearl Jam singer and Bax pair Kurt Block and Rusty Willoughby allegedly drank the champers out of Converse tennis shoes. Very strange. Currently causing quite a stir in Seattle are the Model Rockets. The band features Scott Sutherland previously with the Criminally overlooked Chemistry set and John Ramberg ex-Stumpy Joe. The band's new album Snatch It Back and Hold It has just been issued by CZ Records and demand for it in Seattle is huge. In fact, at the release party for the album, copies sold out very quickly. The album is also doing big business in Spain where the model rockets have already toured twice. you know where you are? <laughs> All I know is when I was here and I was 17. <laughs> I was in the middle of a fucking jungle baby! Out, Kerrang's roving eye. This week, Jason Arnopp At My Dying Bride's Yorkshire Wedding. It's an old Yorkshire tradition, explains My Dying Bride bassist Adrian, pointing at singer Aaron pissing in the river. Whenever you go out for a meal, one of the party has to have a waz in the lake. Maybe that's what My Dying Bride's The Angel and the Dark River album was all about. We're standing outside the Boathouse Inn, a cosy fire burning pub restaurant in Saltaire, three miles out of Bradford. The place is being commandeered for a My Dime Bride wedding reception. Celebrating the release of their new album, Like Gods of the Sun, 10 lucky Kerrang competition winners are here, each bringing along a mate. The only real marriage happening tonight will be between ale and throat. Nevertheless, there is a double-tiered cake, complete with Barbie doll bride and guitar-toting groom. The free drinking begins early. At first, the atmosphere is a shade tent, with band and fans sitting apart. My Dime Bride aren't being rock stars though, they're scared shitless. Drummer Rick admits that he threw up last night just thinking about this event. The band aren't PR veterans. Alcohol soon loosens inhibitions. After a rather special three-course wine-drenched meal, everyone gets down to some serious bollocks speak. 20-year-old Kerrang! reader Tim Osborne is fired up and Larry. He waffles something about having offered the waitress some of my cappuccino log, but she settled for cream instead. Tim has the best autographed album sleeve, having invited My Dying Bride to abuse him. So far, he's been labelled a cunt, a wanker, and most memorably old man knackers. When it comes to wider fans like My Dying Bride, the word different and depth are repeatedly used. I like their raw emotion and moody intensity, infuses 17-year-old Oliver Langdon. The singing's so unique, almost like moaning. They're one of the best bands in England. The keyboards and violin gives them an edge, and 17-year-old uh, Andy Whitaker from the popular beat combo, Orphryacus mdb of proper heavy metal reckons 33 year old craig thompson i first saw them supporting iron maiden last year and they were sound i like the dark side of their lyrics plus they're from west yorkshire 21 year old andy gateshill who freely admits to being a bit of a northern bastard is more tongue-in-cheek with his praise the band are shitty kids but at least this has saved me having to cook respect to the chef before long it's hard to find the ashtrays as pint glasses crowd tables things get rowdy there's quite a few younger people here, observes drummer Rick. They're getting pissed just from leaning on the bar. 17-year-old Annette Roberts is frankly legless. In between darting around taking photos, drinking heavily and ranting about placebo, she manages to explain that she is a recent convert to my dying bride. I like the gothicness she draws. Madam, lie on this stretcher. Aaron, meanwhile, is drunkenly infusing about a hardcore porn version of the classic blood and guts game Doom, which is apparently cruising the internet. He wants to create his own game level based in My Dying Bride's rehearsal room. There is also talk of swapping a flat cap for a whippet's thigh. It is soon one o'clock, but some people understandably don't want to depart. Good old Tim Osborne, for instance, says farewell so many times that Aaron is forced to stand up and dramatically bellow, I cannot believe that you are still here. The night is capped with car journeys to guitarist Calvin's house with much mooning of arses en route. Here we see the premiere of My Dime Bride stylish promo video for For You and guzzle more wine. Arising the next day, with a head like a rotting melon, I discover that one beloved Kerrang! reader has left a touching message on my notepad. Fuck you, you southern twat. Curry and Tetley's rule. Cheers. We now come to this week's cover stars called Heart of Darkness Welcome to Corn singer Jonathan Davis's Private Hell. It's the story of a white trash fuck-up who was told he was possessed, branded a faggot and who wanted to kill members of his own family. Stephen Trazzi finds out why making the band's remarkable new album almost killed America's most twisted rock star. Corn singer Jonathan Davis and I are sitting in the Oldie Inn, a dingy fake wood panel bar in the Los Feliz district of LA. Slowly getting to the bottom of the dark inner demons which power his band's vital heartbeat is powerful disturbing flesh-crawling stuff. It isn't just what Davis is saying that hits so hard, it's his whole body language while he's talking. He's constantly fidgeting, his eyes rolling left and right, he clasps and rubs his hands together or absently plays with bits of his dreadlocked hair. Basically Jonathan Davis is extraordinarily nervous but despite his shy, friendly manner, he admits to being in a perpetual rage at the world around him. Korn's second album, Life is Peachy, is poised to launch the band to stratospheric heights of success. Creatively, it's infinitely superior to its predecessor. Commercially, it's destined to turn Davis, guitarist J-Monkey Schaffer and Brian, bassist Fieldy and drummer David into the metal band of the late 90s. It's also another trip through Jonathan Davis's personal nightmares. Hold tight, this is going to be a dark ride. I'm having major anxiety attacks at the moment, Jonathan Davis says in an unexpectedly soft, quiet voice. I don't know, what well, this album's unlocked, but shit's starting to come out mentally, I can't handle it. I have to go to a doctor now for pills, a sedative to keep my heartbeat regular. When I have these attacks, my heart starts to palpitate and freak out and shit, I don't know what it is, but I just have to go with it. What do these anxiety attacks feel like? It feels like I'm gonna fucking die, he replies. It's like your head's crawling up your asshole, and you just want to get into a ball so fucking tight that you die. You can't think... Don't know what's happening. I conquered it once before but now it's coming back and happening for no reason. There were triggers before but now the attacks are just happening. I decided that I had to get this shit taken care of with just a little sedative because once it starts uh, I can't turn it back. It's like turning your car's engine on and busting the key in the ignition and not being able to turn it off until the gas runs out. Jonathan Davis hasn't been pre-packaged as the nutter by some corporate marketing department purely to help sell records. He's a genuinely traumatised man and watching him open up uh, his mental wounds is a deeply uncomfortable experience. But the more you find out about their singer, the more you come to understand Korn's true power. When Davis screams and pleads and freaks out during the course of a live show or throughout Life is Peachy, he's exercising his own pain. The twisted roots of this pain lie in his childhood and his white trash upbringing in Bakersfield, California. I used to go and visit my grandmother in the trailer park. Most of the people I hung out with uh, grew up that way, he says. I love my grandmother to death. She was the only one I could confide in, and to me, she was like my mum. When she died six years ago, it fucking killed me. Davis's grandmother was responsible for his happiest childhood memory. I remember hearing a knock at the door one Christmas, he recalls, and how it made me so happy to answer it. My grandmother had bought my first drum kit, a blue glitter kit. I started playing real drums when I was four. When I was five, I was playing a couple of songs in my dad's bar band. I picked it up early and I've been into it ever since. I remember when my dad kidnapped me from my grandmother's house. He says my mum and him were fighting. I remember them screaming at each other. He'd started crying and they'd look at me and go, look at what you did to him, making me cry. That was when I was two. Our conversation lurches back and forth between Davis's jarring memories of alienation and abuse. At one point, he vividly recalls his father's abrupt conversion to the Pentecostal church. His words suddenly a blur. When I was 13 or 14, my pop got into fucking religion really bad, he says. I'd go to church with him, and of all these people saying I was possessed by the devil, it scared the shit out of me. These people are crazy. They'd be singing and jumping up and down, and then they'd start screaming in no language you'd heard before, praying in tongues. Then the priest would come and lay their hands on them to knock the devil out of them, and all these fuckers would fall to the floor. Then all the other people there would turn to me and start coming after me, because I wasn't down on the floor. I was like, get the fuck away from me, and they'd be yelling, he's got the devil in him. I finally got my dad out of that shit, which is cool. For Davis, screaming until his gut hurts for corn is the best therapy he's found for memories like this and many, many more. I'm not screaming, just a fucking scream, he says. All that stuff is my whole life. I went through so many different settings. My parents were divorced like any typical American family. I was three years old and getting pulled back and forth between my mum and dad. That's how I started off my life. I was raised by five or six different families and it really fucked my head up. It was like, who the fuck am I? I had my mum and her mum, my dad and his mum, my stepdad and my godparents all trying to raise me their way. I'd always be jumping from house to house like a kid being pawned off. I felt like I was a burden on them all. Davis never saw much of his father, a touring musician, during his childhood which only added to his sense of confusion. He was never there, he sighs. When he did come home I'd see him for 3 days and freak out and then he'd be gone again. He was 21 years old when I was born and 24 when he and my mum divorced, so he was still a kid too. Seeing all the shit that he did and how I totally felt like i was a mistake to him i understood that from an early age people think daddy was written because my dad fucked me up in the ass but that's not what that song's about it wasn't about my dad or my mum. when i was a kid i was being abused by somebody else and i went to my parents and told them about it and they thought i was lying and joking around they never did shit about it they didn't believe it was happening to their son i don't really like to talk about that song this is as much as i've ever talked about it At times, Jonathan Davis seems as if he's dying to fully open himself up and let people into his world, but something holds him back. He says that he still finds it impossible to trust anyone or anything. I built up trust after my grandmother died. When I got my first two girlfriends, he explains, because I needed a woman figure, I fell in love, got dicked, did it again and got really dicked. After that, something clicked and I couldn't trust no one ever again. I don't even trust myself. That emotion has no meaning to me anymore. The young Davis didn't find school any easier than life at home by his own admission he was a loner who found it difficult to make friends at my school uh, there were these jocks walking around everywhere he says you take one look at uh, you and in your makeup and you were instantly a fact to them i was into the new romantic scene at the time Duran Duran and that stuff and that's what you did wear fritty makeup and uh fritty shirts so the jocks just thought that guy's gay If I'd been going to school in LA, it might have been totally different, but in Bakersfield, I was a faggot. I got by, but I was always the school queer. For a brief time, Davis tried to fight back by joining the local gym. I worked out for four months and then questioned why I was doing something I hated, he shrugged. I was only doing it to get back at those people somehow, so I just said fuck it. He's fully aware of how differently the same people will treat him now that he's in a successful rock band. My drummer David is a total workout freak. And we had this party last night and all these gym buddies turned up, he smiles. These big huge guys were going, you rock. I was looking at them thinking, those are the type of motherfuckers who used to call me a queer. And now they want to be my friend. Alright. With the notable exception of the atypical humorous All Day I Dream About Sex, all of the songs on Life Is Peachy, like those on the debut LP call continue to deal with Davis' childhood traumas and torments. Throw any... And, uh, and the song titles of Jonathan Davis and he'll immediately judge up the people and the events that are scarred across each lyric. Come, people think it's sexist and it isn't. It's more me subconsciously bitching at all the women who've hurt me in my life. It's not about women in general, just those women who've hurt me. Initially, we wrote it to send up to American Radio for a joke because they always chop up all the other songs. So we were gonna send this out as the first single to get people talking and then follow it up with a real single seven days later. Good God, it's about a guy I knew in school who I thought was my friend but who fucked me. He came into my life with nothing, hung out on my house, lived off me and made me do shit I didn't really want to do. I was into new romantic music and he was a mod and he'd tell me if I didn't dress like a mod, he wouldn't be my friend anymore. Whenever I had plans to go on a date with a chick, he'd sabotage it because he didn't have a date or nothing. He was a gutless fucking nothing. I haven't talked to him for years. Kill you. It's about a relative I first met when I was 12. I fucking hate that bitch. She's the most evil, fucked up person I've met in my whole life. She hated my guts. She did everything she could to make my life hell. Like, when I was sick, she'd feed me tea with Tabasco, which is really hot pepper oil. She'd make me drink it by saying, you have to burn that cold out, boy. Fucked up shit like that, so every night, When I go to sleep, I dream of killing that bitch in some way, some sick way I had a sexual fantasy about her and I don't know what that stems from or why, but I always dreamt about fucking her and killing her. Jonathan Davis knows that he's escaped through corn. His life hasn't ended up as weird and ugly and hopeless as it could have easily been. For a start, he no longer has to work in the local morgue. I mean, what else would I be doing if I weren't doing this, he says. I was chopping up dead bodies at the Bakersfield coroner's office. Would I have taken that further? What drives anybody to do stupid shit? You need an outlet, art or something, to let the shit flow. And I used to be into hiding it. I got to go and cut up dead bodies for a living and that was a high. I'll never forget the sound of cutting flesh. It's the most awesome sound. It's like a drug and I got into the power of it. I didn't go to jail and I got to cut up corpses. But I didn't disrespect the body in any way. I was just uh, uh, shit going on in my head. It helped me for a while then i got into the band and i think that saved me from going further and further music is where i let it go but even now i don't let it all go i still hold back shit i'm scared like a little kid i don't want to let all of it out and i don't know why viva <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life shut up Live and the first concert reviewed this week is Metallica, supported by Corrosion of Conformity at the Arena Newcastle on Monday, October the 7th. Reviewed by Liam Charles, this one gets 5 out of 5. Pretty boys, they are not. Corrosion of Conformity are about as unfussy and untarted as rock music ever gets, but when the glorious Clean My Wound splutters into life, it sounds like an entire tank regiment turning over its engines. The headliners have been impressively generous in carving out Corrosion's allocation of the Mighty Metalli stage. Maybe too generous. Pepper Keenan is content to play to a small and cozy segment of the crowd, and it's left to guitarist Woody Weatherman and Catweasel, uh, he means Mike Dean, editor, on bass to cover the miles and reach everyone else. But putting these hiccups aside, this is a really powerful show from a raggedy ass mob, doubtless used to operating in its surroundings far less opulent than this. Metallica on the other hand are used to sheds this size. They enter the arena one by one and each do a lap of honour before they've even played a note. They know we're going to enjoy this. The new stage is amazing, literally staggering. It looks like a giant adventure playground with ramps and stairways and big fuck-off amps. Metallica are having a blast on it. Sure, they're a little less tight than usual, but that's hardly surprising when you consider that Jason Euston and Lars Ulrich are frequently 200 yards away from each other, while Kurt Hammett may not even be in the same country. They begin with so what? The so fucking what refrain a challenge to the load lovers and luddites who demand nothing less than a return to garage days, sissy haircuts and songs about being trapped under ice. Then a fusillade of eyebrows singeing flash bombs heralds the start of creeping death. You want heavy demands Hetfield and sad but true rolls unstoppably out to be followed by ain't my bitch, the first slice of load offered up. This crowd like it just fine. Whiplash gives Newstead a chance to sing, while behind him Auric's drum kit performs slow motion pirouettes in preparation for the ultimate set piece, 1. Explosions burst all over the stage, machine guns chatter and a camouflage squaddy runs out only to be cut down in a shower of sparks. Staging and a bit naff, you find yourself thinking until they hit the staccato strobe-lit darkness-imprisoning-me section and then your breath is literally taken away. Nothing else matters, as Hetfield on the stool. Val style, and a medley of old material including hit the lights and seek and destroy plants a big sloppy grim onto the mugs of the harder-nosed Metalli fans. And it's time for the grandest of grand finales as Enter Salmon chugs away, fires and explosions erupt all around, a lighting pylon collapses, roadies fall from the rigging like autumn leaves, and a man runs around in flames. There are gasps from the crowd, as just for a second, you're not entirely sure if it's for real or not. Metallica are the last great heavy metal band. The only act capable of mounting a show like this without the merest hint of crossover appeal. No indie kids and no 40-somethings you quite like the last single. It is the greatest arena show ever staged. No argument. Small caveat here. Uh, Because I don't own a soundproof room, who does? Uh, I'm recording this in my um, spare room, stroke office in my uh, house and uh, someone at the back, I started drilling, uh, and it's really, really loud. Uh, hopefully, that's not being picked up too badly on this microphone. Uh, I'm going to record a couple of things and listen back, and if it's terrible, I might move. But apologies if you can hear any kind of like drilling. It basically sounds like the dentist has just moved in next door. It's it's pretty bad. Anyway, the next review this week is for free colors red, supported by Jolt at the Varsity Wolverhampton on Monday, October the 7th. Reviewed by Steve Beebe, this one gets four out of five. Like Honeycrack and whatever, tonight's bands come with a free Wild Hearts link. Never before has such a troubled band had the power to launch or affect so many others. Joel are interesting. A feisty trio, their focus and musicianship is never in question. Mark Head's enigma though he is, writes songs that stay with you for days. Was It Wild jars the senses with its irregular angles and boasts an intriguing exchange of male and female vocals. The Cynical Customers is simply a mad barrage of noise while the recently released Sex and Checks thunders along like a younger, paler cousin of Nirvana's breed. When it comes to discussing the potential of Free Colours Red, there can be no argument. From the frenetic start of their set to its crushing conclusion, Free Colours Red are the musical equivalent of a V8 engine firing on every cylinder. The quartet take everything that's cool about British rock at present and endow it with their own character. Guitarists Chris McCormack and Ben Hardin lay down a thickest wall of sound, on top of which they create some magnificent melodies skyscraper hooks come at you from all angles it's part punk part metal and part pop and it works this is my hollywood and sunny in england are founded on the sex pistols reckless abandon but the hard-edged flair of bands like the almighty is not forgotten singer bassist pete vukovic might have difficulty communicating between songs but he tears into those jagged harmonies with obvious reddish Nerve gas it's knocked out at a pneumatic pace and where Copper Girl and At right Marsh show signs of clever, more textured songwriting the likes of Halfway and Mental Block sound plain fucked off. With three colours red in the house, you can dance around like a loon one minute and raise your fist and yell the next. The Wild Hearts have left their mark on Brit Rock and there's no escaping it. Big pop songs with even bigger guitars are the order of the day. Why not rejoice while it lasts? Next up, we have Dub War, supported by H-Blocks at the Cathouse Glasgow on Tuesday, October the 8th. Reviewed by Eddie Thomas, this one gets four out of five. If you close your eyes and listen hard enough, German rap metal crew H-Blocks sound vaguely like Rage Against a Machine covering the Wild Hearts. Unfortunately, as intriguing as this combination sounds on paper, H-Blocks can't quite justify either comparison. While tunes like Try Me One More Time or recent single How Do You Feel cause spontaneous outbreaks of leaping disease among the crowd, there are too many moments where they lose focus and sound frankly average. In direct contrast, Dub War are right on form at the moment, with a superb album. Wrong Side of Beautiful just out, they are never going to play anything other than a great gig, but the Welsh Quartet are too special to be merely great. Instead they turn in a caustic, compelling performance with the obvious intention of staking their place at the head of the Brit Rock revolution. Fronted by the unhinged Benji, the only vocalist in modern music to provide any competition to Skunkanaxi's skin Loon of the Year contests, they blast through an electrifying, energised set designed to force even the most reticent dancers to get rid of yo-yo impressions. Coming on like bad brains taken to their logical conclusion, they're an unstoppable force Benji in particular connecting brilliantly with his crowd, forcing each and every drop of energy from the enormous bouncing mosh pit that the Cat House becomes. It's not exactly clear how it happened, but one large angry Rasta bloke plus three mad taffs equals one of the most intense, diverse and intelligent bands in British rock music right now. Well hard, well impressive. And finally this week, and just to light up the letters page, in the next couple of weeks we have The Prodigy. Live at the Civic Hall, Wolverhampton on Monday, October the seventh. Reviewed by Paul Travers, this one gets five out of five. Okay, so the phenomenon that calls itself the Prodigy is basically a dance act. In the face of their incendiary live shows, this really doesn't matter. They're far too large and awkward to be fully contained in any one pigeonhole. Anyway, they've mutated outwards, thrusting out grisly pseudopods in an exploratory fashion and returning with metal guitars, punk attitude, and underpinning it all. Viciously pounding rhythms that are every bit as powerful as virtually anything ever made with two planks of wood and a drum kit. The prodigy give the lie to any notion that dance acts are compulsorily uh, faceless and mindlessly repetitive. The manic Keith Flint is the cartoon anti hero with the most visual impact, a blur of energy and bad eyeliner like a dancing panda on speed. If Keith is the freak show clown, however, then the cooler than thou Max in reality is a scary eyed ringleader holding the performance side together in a menacingly engrossing fashion. As for the songs, they're all belting out with maximum intensity, but also they're instantly recognisable. Poison and No Good Start the Dance are pure rushes of energy, while voodoo people and their Love bring the jagged guitars more to the fore. The forthcoming single, Breathe, is less frantic, but still promises great things for the follow-up album to music for the jilted generation due out in the new year. The Prodigy, have proven to be one of the decade's greatest levelers in musical terms, bringing together the various tribes into one great, orgiastic celebration of noise, power, and energy. Punks and crusties rub shoulders with emaciated ravers and kids in the deriga mosher uniform of cut-off army pants and big bloody boots. The one common thread is that they're all here to have a good time and to experience one of the most explosive live acts currently on the planet. They do not leave disappointed. Having the time of our lives Well sort of, true California good time rockers no doubt have been larking about on exotic beaches in Hawaii and they are the hottest new band in America, but they're still pissed off and it's all our fault. Stop ignoring the three blokes in our band, front babe Gwen Stefani tells Razel. We've been home for maybe 15 days out of the last 12 months. I've just been going nuts. I mean, this has been the time of our lives and the best fun ever, but I think I need to get my batteries recharged. Gwen Stefani, self-confessed rock chick and vocalist with Orange County, California's ska-pop good time rockers, no doubt, is talking to Kerrang from a phone booth inside London's Heathrow Airport. We were supposed to be frolicking with her on a beach in Hawaii, but that's another story, and we'll come to it later. Right now, Gwen's in good humour, but she's frazzled. Pooped. Knackered. The previous evening, the No Doubt troupe appeared as music guests on a chat show in Paris, France called NPA. It was their final engagement before a well-earned three-week break following a roller coaster year which has seen their third album, Tragic Kingdom, sell more than two million copies in the US. The effervescent Just A Girl single stormed the stateside airwaves and rumours escalate a flirty stuff betwixt Al Gwyn and Gavin Rossdale of tour label mate Bush. Sounds ultra peachy. But for no doubt who've actually had to wait nine years for their overnight success the tide of fame has brought with it a media hyena hungry for info on front babe gwen a development which has caused no small amount of friction within the no doubt ranks as we're about to discover from gwen herself and from drummer uh, adrian young rewind 24 hours adrian young is talking to Gwen from a dressing room in a french tv studio he has a point to make Nobody really wants to talk to the band. They all want to talk to Gwen, he says in a voice not unlike Beavis' mate Butthead. Which is awkward because this has been a band for nine years. It's not Madonna with backup musicians. I mean, we expected it a little bit, but sometimes it goes over the top. We've even had a weird experience with Kerrang magazine, he claims, as I prompt him to reveal all about our shameless editorial tactics. We did a photo session for Kerrang as a band, and when it was printed, we were cut out of the shot and it was just Gwen. It is what it is, but it does make it frustrating. I'd rather be in my hotel room than wasting my fucking time at a photo shoot. If I'm not gonna be in the photo, and it's not an ego thing, he stresses. Kerrang has also given, no doubt, some of the most extreme live reviews of recent years. Various personnel have claimed that the band are everything from hugely entertaining to amateurish uh, to unbearable on stage. We've heard that they're not best pleased about the more critical appraisals. Obviously. Different journalists will have different opinions, young shrugs, and if somebody says they think we suck, I personally don't care that much. But when they state reasons I don't understand, then I care. When we played in London earlier this year at Camden Underworld, I thought it was great. Well, at least it looked like people were into it, he laughs. Point taken. Gwen Stefani speaks like a woman who could do the voiceover for a honeypot in some animated Disney cartoon. Her candy-sweet tones are currently echoing around the Heathrow Airport departure lounge. She's wearing Doc Martens, Adidas sweatpants, a big brown jumper with shades perched on her head just so I know because she told me and coincidentally today, October 3rd, is her birthday. Star sign Libra. I can't believe I'm 27, she gasps. And I can have a 33 hour birthday because I'm going to America now and can milk it with the time difference. But I love being this age. I feel a lot more comfortable with myself these days than I have in the past. Gwen admits, that in her high school days she was lazy with no motivation and it was her brother former no doubt keyboardist eric who pushed her into the band thing in fact it was eric who brought home the fateful madness album which inspired no doubt to become scar pop good time rockers originally gwen co-fronted with one john spence there was like this underground ska thing that was happening she explains, john was black and i was white and we were making a statement Tragically, John took his own life back in No Doubt's embryonic stages, leaving a shy Gwen to face the crowds alone. So how come they suddenly connected with post-grunge America? Do people uh, want to smile again? Yeah, it's a timing thing, she concurs. When our first record came out in 92, we were illegal. The grunge police were like, I do not think so. But it's not like it didn't influence us. I mean, Nirvana, what a band. I know it's probably only our five minutes in the spotlight, and it could all be gone pretty soon. But all I know is, I don't think this record would uh, even come out I didn't think that we would get on the radio. I definitely didn't think we'd be at number four on the Billboard charts. So it's all been icing on the cake. And this is the first album where I got to be totally creative and write all the lyrics. I spilled my guts out on it. I mean, we've always played this kind of music. I just hope we're better than we were in 87. That seems like a long time ago, I wince. Yep, and we've been through a lot of changes, she replies. In the early days, Tony, Canal, bassist, and I were dating. We were together for seven years. Also, my brother was in the band so it was like this really weird incestuous family. And then about two years ago, that all changed. Tony broke up with me and Eric quit the band. So these days, well, we've been together long enough to be officially legally a family. But even the closest of families fall out, and no doubt are no exception. Since we've become popular, there's been this problem with the media like separating the girl from the boy, says Gwen. And it's been really difficult because I didn't ask for that shit, you know. So we used it as the loose concept for the video to our latest American single, Don't Speak. It mostly just shows the tension uh, with like a photo shoot of me getting the cover and them getting cropped out. Sophie Muller, the video's director, came to hang out with us around the time we played this year's uh, Glasgow Tea in the Park festival. And at that time, our band was barely talking to each other. It was horrible. We were fighting right in front of her. And we came up with the idea of incorporating it into the video. So it was like therapy. There have been other problems and strains and pressures for Gwen to bear. We were supposed to be conducting this interview in Honolulu, but she lost her voice on the day we were due to fly out and was told by various medical experts not to talk for several days. So I stayed at home and she managed to pose for pictures by the sea. Ho hum. How's the old larynx hanging? There's definitely been a big struggle in the last month or two, she admits. It's like I never, ever have problems with my voice. Then again, I've never toured extensively and done this many interviews. It was weird. We just started our first headlining tour in America about two months ago and my voice started getting really hoarse. I was like wow rock chick she exclaims in her best mock valley girl airhead shriek. I was into it. It sounded the best it's ever sounded but then after about three weeks it started really hurting and it became an effort to speak. I went to four different doctors and they all said I was on the verge of getting nodes and they wanted to operate and I'm like what are you talking about finally i went to this top doctor who had all these famous people in his office it was really weird he was like you just need to shut up take a break we cancelled 10 dates and we've never done that before that's why we put our european tour back to november my throat just needs to heal that's why i need this three week break i think we're all just burnt out right now i mean if you're in japan for the first time and you're thinking i can't wait to go home and then fuck i have to go to paris tomorrow That means you're burnt out. And if you can't appreciate going to Paris, then you definitely need to go home. You know what I'm saying, she giggles? Like, if you'd done this interview two days ago, I wouldn't have sounded happy at all. Normally, I'm mostly high. I'm not a depressed person, but I've gone into a couple this year, real ones, and I've gone, oh my God, this is what depression is like, it's scary. But after we have these three weeks off, we're gonna be so ready to come back, she infuses. Charged up, I'm ready to go. So before little Gwen Stefani was bullied into singing by her elder brother and before her band became the hottest new thing in America, what were her own personal dreams and ambitions? I know that in kindergarten they asked us to draw a picture of what you want to be when you grow up and I drew a picture of a bride she explains with such devastatingly cute sincerity that I really can't make up my mind whether to sigh sloppily or puke violently. But, she continues, for the first time in my life I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm really glad that I'm a rock chick now. Feedback! The letter of the week this week begins. I know it's a bit late, but better late than never and here's my contribution to Kerrang's Kurt Cobain tribute. I lived in San Francisco for a couple of years and had the ultimate luck to bump into Kurt in his pyjamas at 3am on the way to the 7-Eleven. He was staggering around with some friends and as we came closer he turned around and said hey what's up. We were speechless. He was so cool. It was like we were old friends meeting on the street. Then he said, see you around, and he took off in a car with some friends. The following week, a local paper ran a story about Kurt recording material in a studio above an African store on Diverserdo Street, exactly where I met him. It was just too cool. It was an experience I will remember forever. Teen spirit will never die. Kate, Birmingham. A few things Kerrang! readers should get into their sad heads. One, Kurt Cobain was a bloke in a band. He killed himself. Heart-wrenching poems are not going to bring him back. In fact, they're rather pathetic. Deal with it. It's only music. Let it go. 2. People who like the prodigy have a right to do so. No, they're not metal. They dance with a hard edge to it. If this appeals to people, then fine. Personally, I hate it. But then, I believe that everyone has the right to their own opinion. 3. If the wild hearts split up, try not to cry. You sad bastards. A great band. But if you're honest, it's only a rumour. Obviously, Kerrang! enjoys a bit of gossip as much as The Sun does. Evil Eddie. So, Uncle Johnny Rotten has been mouthing off again, fine, he slagged off Pearl Jam, they don't care. But the ultimate mark of a total pussy is slagging off a dead guy, not just any dead guy but Kurt. We all know that Rotten's just an antagonistic bastard, but this is not on. How can he say that Kurt was trying to glorify himself? No one can criticise suicide without ever having felt suicidal. I don't remember Rotten ever feeling confused about his existence. He just runs around with his dumb shit bog brush hair thinking he's really cool because he's singing about anarchy. Big fucking deal. X from Shit Town. Why don't people think before putting pen to paper? They claim to have compassion for members of Nirvana after Kurt's death, yet they slag off Courtney Love. Yes, Dave Grohl introduced Kurt to Courtney, but does that mean that Courtney no longer has the right to choose whether she likes or dislikes him? I don't think so. Kurt might have been in the band with Dave and Chris, but he was married to Courtney. How do you think he would feel about everyone slagging her off? Do not pass judgment when you don't know the full story. Do you know dave and chris personally when you've been through what courtney has come back and slag her off assholes julie Leeds. thanks for putting marilyn Manson in kerrang i've loved them for two years now and it's very rare to see them in a british magazine let's have some more oh and when is the new album antichrist superstar actually coming out sam ramirez it's out this week sam see our review on page 42 editor why do people keep referring to iron maiden in the past tense they're not fucking dead. I'm talking about Mike Peake's review of the best of the Beasts Crane 615 He says he likes it, but he talks about it as if it's posthumous. I've been into Maiden for 14 years. How many other bands have come and gone in that time? Come on, Maiden, let's have another 20 years. Gary Groves, Derby. It is a best of album, which explains why Mike's review referred to Maiden in the past tense. We know Maiden are still very much alive, which is why they were on our cover with Metallica a month ago. Editor. Ill communication Alice, what's the matter? After three years of personal problems, cancelled tours and split stories, you'd hardly expect Alison Chains' guitarist Jerry Cantrell to be the happiest man on planet rock. But he is. Don't you worry about us tells Paul Brannigan. Once I get my plumbing sorted out, we'll be fine. Hey, can you excuse me for a moment? My hot tub guy has just arrived to fix a dripping faucet. Ah, the trials and tribulations thrown by a merciless and sadistic god into the path of our rock and roll heroes. As if the constant onslaught of money, adulation and supple-bodied sexual partners weren't enough to contend with, they're tormented by the curse of dodgy plumbing too. Today's hapless victim is Jerry Cantrell, Alice in Chains' guitarist, Seattle resident and all-round good egg. But the sun is shining in Seattle and it's going to take more than a malevolent tap to darken the lank-haired six stringers demeanour. Which is quite handy for us since we're about to tactlessly pry and probe into the often murky world of Alice in Chains. The band have just released a video of their performance on MTV's prestigious Unplugged show uh, which was recorded in New York City on April 10th of this year. An album of the same show was released in August and we at Kerrang! reckon that it was most definitely the dog's bollocks. You lot obviously agreed sending the aforementioned collection hurtling into the UK top 20, naturally the video is one louder. Marvel at Jerry Cantrell's evocative strumming, swoon under the gorgeous strains of Lane Staley's plaintive singing, use industrial language as you remember that this is as close as you're going to get to the genuine article playing their songs live for many, many months. Sightings of the lesser spotted Alice are rarer than unicorn shite these days. Staley's well-documented alliances with pharmaceuticals which are neither big nor clever have meant that the quartet have been restricted to a handful of gigs in recent years. In fact, The Unplugged Show was the band's first public performance for almost three years, an extraordinary fact given their enormous success. Like their fellow post-grunge platinum icon, Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in Chains have almost ground to a halt, thanks largely to internal problems. You might imagine that this situation would prove almost intolerable to the other band members but jerry cantrell is philosophical about the situation it's not like i don't care he says but things are rather out of my hands it's a bit embarrassing that our loyal fans are having to settle for this sort of secondhand performance rather than the genuine alice live experience and believe me there's nothing i'd like better than to be in people's faces from the tip of a stage rather than the corner of a tv screen but the way things are at present that's just not feasible Anyway, that MTV show was one of our career highlights, so at least you're seeing us at our peak. Sometimes, we suck in reality. Despite Jerry's protestations, life in Addison Chains must be a curious reality at present. For all the pleasure to be had in kicking back with friends and doing normal, everyday things, musicians are never happier than when parading their artistry in front of a crowd. Earlier this summer, we witnessed Jerry jamming joyously with Sponge during the Detroit Quintets Lollapalooza show in LA, and it's inconceivable that the guitarist can settle for tinkering around in his home studio forever. I love playing, period, he laughs. And with our band being as it is, I have to grab any opportunity I get. Obviously, it's not the same as playing with the guys, but I'm now available for weddings, bar mitzvahs, all the usual shit. Just check the phone book for me in the guitar whore for hire section. Cantrell is patently a man who adheres to the if you're not laughing, you're not living credo. But one wonders if the current joke situation is wearing a little thin. It's a rude question, but could he ever envisage ditching Lane's services in order to get Alice in Chains up and running again? When you're married, you don't spend your life thinking about the possibility of getting a divorce he sighs. We're not some manufactured band thrown together by a record company. We're lifelong friends, brothers almost, and we're not so superficial and shallow as to cast out a friend for the sake of a few quick bucks. Everyone knows that Lane has had his personal problems, but we all have them from time to time, and we always try to be there for one another. We're over at Lane's house all the time, just hanging, drinking beer and playing video games. So it's not like we're pissed with him uh, over any of this. We'll come through this, you'll see. Right, it's time to abandon the softly, softly approach. So Jerry, are Alice Chains rehearsing together much at present? Of course we're rehearsing, we're a band, not a bunch of fucking accountants, he cackles. Are you digging for some clear proof that we still exist as a band? God forbid, no. We're just curious as to the regularity of Alice and Chains' musical get-togethers. There's nothing regular about this band, period, Jerry chuckles. But don't worry yourself too much about our day-to-day behaviour. We're fine. But should Alice in Chains fans worry about recent rumours that Jerry Cantrell is stockpiling material for a solo album? Yeah, definitely. Alice uh, is no more and the Jerry Cantrell project is about to take flight. We'll take that as a no then. I don't know how these stories start, he replies. I record all the time, but Alice is my band and I'm perfectly happy at the moment. At the moment? I'll give us a break, will you? Mr. Cantrell, with all due respect, a break is surely the last thing you need. For the record, Jerry isn't sure what's happening next with Alice in Chains. Bays off to Japan soon for promotional duties for the release of the band's last self-titled studio album over there. It's been delayed for months due to the cover artwork featuring a three-legged dog, an image of deformity unacceptable under Japanese law. They said, we have a slight problem with your album. Nothing serious, just the front and back artwork, Jerry recalls. We were like Spinal Tap, you know. You should have seen the cover we wanted to use, but it's finally being released over there in a plain white sleeve. Allison Change's Master of Mirth hasn't been totally underground in recent months. He turned up at the Krang Awards in London with drummer Sean Kinney, attended the MTV Awards in New York with Sean Kinney, and was spotted last month in the Big Apple's Paramount Hotel in a state of alcoholic disrepair with the boy Kinney and toe yet again. You two are the Tweedledum and Tweedledee of Seattle angst, aren't you? Well, it's as much fun hanging out together now as it was back when the band started and we all lived together in Seattle, he laughs. Is there anything you miss about those days? Oh, sure. Waking up in someone else's vomit, pissing in beer bottles, chucking shoes at lamps because you're too fucked to turn him off properly. Life just isn't the same without those joys. He just won't play the game. Search as we might for misery and discontent, Jerry Cantrell refuses to take off his happy head and exchange it for the one labelled cantankerous self-centred rock git. He'll chat about his love of Metallica, the boys, about the fulfillment of his childhood dream when Alison in Chains supported Kiss This Summer, a gig coming soon to a worldwide website near you, and about the crapness of British weather. But ask him to do something as simple as piss and moan about the state of his career, and he'll let you down every time, which says a lot about the strength of friendship which binds Alice in Chains together. It's a bond which will doubtless see them uh, through this difficult period to reclaim their rightful place as one of the most inspirational and important bands of the decade. Any minor gripes at all, Jerry. Do you know any good plumbers? This guy seems to be having problems. The singles of the week this week are reviewed by Mike Fancy Bob Peak. The first single reviewed is Stereo World by Feeder. This gets 4Ks. In which the Kerrang office leaps off his ass, yells Hail Brit Rock, and sits down again, tapping its collective foot. Feeder at Ace, and this is as good an introduction to the world of low down dirty rock and roll as a full service date with John Bon Jovi. Great song, great production. Shyad with their single La La Land. This gets 4ks. Amazingly catchy Owen from this smart New Zealand noise four piece. Last seen in Britain supporting Faith No More early in 95. Over to you, Radio 1 playlist blokes. Angels of the Silences by Counting Crows. This one gets 3ks. Surprisingly rocking out in from this distinctly downbeat Yank nerdcore crew, whose usual ambulance can barely match even Keith Chegwin in the punch department. Not Sepultura, but not fucking killing me softly either. John Spencer Blues Explosion with their single Two Kinds of Love. This gets 2Ks. We like it lo fi. We can uh, bear things that fizz and go fuzz. We can say that John Spencer is fucking excellent in an attempt to appear cool. We'd be lying. Seaweed with their single Spanaway. This gets 4Ks. Scoop up a dollop of quicksand, fumble around for a smattering of sieve and carefully blend in a dash of shelter. The result, Seaweed, a punchy, beefy, hardcorey ace effort that you should investigate now. Soundclash EP by War. This gets 1K. Oh dear me. No, this isn't the stuff of raging hysteria, of people ranting on about Dub War being the best friggin' band in Britain, etc. This is free, very unrocking jungle dub mixes by some people whose obvious talent is more than slightly outweighed by the fact that this EP is shite. Pissed on with their single Grey Flap, this gets 4Ks. You've already got this on Supersonic Volume 2, which is taped to the cover of this very mag. Why not stick it on right now and we can review this together. I think it's very operatic, slightly haunting and the only remotely serious threat to white zombie and ages. Your turn. Hey, come back. And the single of the week this week goes to Reef with their single Place Your Hands. This gets 5Ks. God, was I ever wrong when I gave Reef's debut LP a miserable 3Ks last year. Place Your Hands is yet more proof positive that A I suck and that B Reef and the bollocks when it comes to cool, whacked-out, good time rock and roll, lavishly over-the-top vocals, a ridiculous honky-tonk piano and a gospel-less chorus from heaven. Top 10 for sure. Board in the USA It seemed like a great idea. Fly to New York to hook up with Swedish hardcore heroes Fireside at the start of their first US tour and watch them go mad in the Big Apple. Sadly, as Paul Brannigan is about to discover, the youthful quartet are the least crazy band in the world, ever. La 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 la. Kim Wilde's classic 80s hit, Kids in America, is blasting out across the sweaty dance floor of a packed New York club, and a young Swedish guitarist is joining a couple of ridiculously pissed Kerrang types in punching the air and screaming along like a burk. This is what we want, youthful excitement and rib-tickling fun. You see, when you're young, dumb and full of cum, New York is the most exciting city in the world. Hell, we've only been here for a couple of days and already we've witnessed crack deals, shared elevators with members of Addison Chains and the Foo Fighters and almost been killed by taxi drivers who believe that conventional road rules are the uh, dictates of the great horned beast himself. So we figured that this would be the place to meet up with youthful Swedish quartet Fireside as they embark upon their debut US club tour. After all, Fireside take most of their musical cues from the dynamic cut and thrust of New York hardcore bands like Quicksand. Their fabulous debut album is entitled Do Not Tailgate, words which are emblazoned on the rear of every yellow cab and well, they're bound to be fascinated by all that Manhattan has to offer. In hindsight, perhaps we were a little optimistic. Rewind several hours and several pints of piss weak yank beer. So what do a quartet of ludicrously youthful Swedes make of the Big Apple's glittering glamorous core? It's good. It's nice, bassist Franz Johansson says. That's not exactly the answer we were hoping for, but thanks anyway. At this juncture, we should point out that hardcore bands and music journalists are rarely comfortable bedfellows. Bands such as Fugazi rightly perceive that journalists are the cock-sucking disciples of Satan, dedicated solely to draining every last drop of system-bashing spirit from their pure punk hearts, so they refuse to do interviews. Fair enough. The less righteous breed, Quicksand Joelbox, talk to us but say fuck all of interest. This makes it difficult for us to convince you that said bands are hugely talented and exciting. Which is our job, after all. But in a world's quietest band contest, Fireside will walk away with a gold medal. Franz vocalist, guitarist, Christopher Astrom, guitarist Pele Gunnerfeld and drummer Peer Nordmark are fantastic musicians, but quote machines they're not. Not everyone can be Ginger Wildheart or Shirley Manson, but every wannabe rock star should memorize a ready stock of shocking and amusing anecdotes to accentuate their sparkling personalities. If not, they should at least have the wit to make shit up. Throughout the day, Fireside's lips remain as tightly clamped as a camel's bum cheeks in a Sahara sandstorm. What follows is an example of the witty banter which passes between us. Are you primarily influenced by American rock bands? Yes, Franz agrees. Is it true that the 90s have represented the year zero in Swedish rock music with the country's movement towards political liberalism reflected in the recent upsurge of kids picking up guitars and letting rip in excellent new bands like Salt and Whale? Possibly, yes, Christopher concedes. Touring the States for the first time must be exciting. Yes, it is, Franz nods. We'll summarise other eloquent outpourings to give you the quick and easy guide to Fireside. They formed in 1992 as an offshoot of Christopher and Pele's previous punk rock band. They wanted to make music which reflected their love of quicksand, Fugazi's Sonic Youth and 60s soul music. They released singles knee on a couple of tiny Swedish indie labels before coming to the attention of American Recordings A&R man Johan Kugelsberg. Who wished them off to meet legendary label supremo Rick Rubin and signed them up on the spot? Do Not Tailgate has now sold 15,000 copies in the band's native land and earned the band Sweden's equivalent of a Grammy for Best Hard Rock Band. Fireside's first steps towards world dominance came this summer with the quartet opening up the second stage at Lollapalooza, an experience they described as fun. But we'd rather play in Sweden, Franz adds. Christopher smiles broadly because fans dived into the crowd during our first three gigs, we have a reputation at home for being a bit crazy. Crazy? Fuck me pink and call me rosy, but Fireside are surely one of the least crazy bands ever to have stalked the earth. For our scene setting photographs, we wanted snaps of the band looking thrilled to be in New York, giving a bit of way and wahay. Well, hey, this does not happen. Snapper Paul Harry's points out that the band don't smile much. We don't want to be seen as a joke band, Christopher admits. No. I can see that, replies Harry's in the tone best described as derisively cutting. In fairness, hilarity is not Fireside's strong point. One riveting anecdote pivots around a Swedish guy mistaking them for an American band because he'd seen them at Lollapalooza. Sides do not split. But Fireside are obviously content to let their music do the talking, and they are a great band. Blending the harsh dynamics of sidewalk slamming New York hardcore with sweet pop sensibilities, away from the stage they're patently much happier shopping for early big black records than chewing the fat with journalists. Still, master storytellers aren't in the habit of blowing us away in tiny lower east side clubs with tremendously powerful post hardcore grooves. Swings and roundabouts, you see. With their day's work over, the boys become much chattier. Inquiries are made about the English footy results. Chris talks about upcoming shows about our own Fluffy. Per, who's missing his girlfriend at home terribly, still says nothing, but at least he no longer looks like his parents have just been disemboweled before his very eyes. To cement this newfound intimacy, we insist that the boys join us on a trip to New York's infamous exotic cabaret bar, The Blue Angel, the club which provided the inspiration for Demi Moore's performance in striptease. One recent highlight saw a young lady don a pig's head piss into a saucepan of spaghetti and hold a pan into the audience, all good, clean, fun, naturally. Tragically, upon turning up at the club, we discovered The Blue Angel has been closed down, so we retired to a retro pop club uh, called Beave Her. By now, Fireside have become late entrants into the babbling bollocks Olympics. Pele, who all day has confined himself to monosyllabic utterances, rants about great new Swedish punk bands like Brick and Teddy Bears. Franz vigorously demands that the Karen crew buy him beer, and with punk and pop hits of yesterday assailing our ears, we dance like only foreigners on the piss abroad can, badly, and with scant regard for the well-being of our fellow groovers. Which is where we came in, I believe. All together now, we're the kids in America. Whoa. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record. you so heavy, you couldn't get off the turntable. Albums. The first album reviewed this week is Broken Glass by Crowbar. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, this one gets 4Ks. You don't flip a Crowbar CD on the train expecting Vivaldi. You expect to have your fucking skull reduced to ash. And then New Orleans Titans uh, have not disappointed, producing their weightiest bout of southern trend killing yet, only this time there's a little more talk uh, about how many teeth it kicks loose. The production is suitably monstrous, courtesy of Paradise Lost Wild Hearts collaborator Simon Efemi. Pantera's Phil Anselmo is also credited as associate producer, although exactly what this means is uncertain. Regardless. Broken Glass is a brutal bastard of an album, with zed tune guitars buzzing like giant mutating bees on crack. After retrieving your jaw from the ground, you then notice that Crowbar have been just a tad more adventurous with this one. After all, it is their fourth album and there are only so many ways to skin an alligator. Holy shit, was that a melody just then? A twisted discordant, hell-born melody granted, but something falling into the category of a tune. Nevertheless. Both riff-wise and vocally, we hear deviations from the usual primal concrete guitars and Kurt Weinstein's stuck-bore voice. Opener Conquering, for instance, starts off hardcore fast before settling down somewhat, and featuring Crowbar's answer to the guitar solo, a section of warped semi-melodic riffing. We're not talking a progression akin to the Berlin Wall coming down admittedly, just a little more light and shade. Nothing and I Am Forever are the album's departures, with Weinstein shoehorning some true emotion into the Crowbar mould. They make songs like Burn Your World sound even more ferocious. Then, there's the bruising You Know I'll Live Again, the coruscating above, below and in between, and the super sludgy Reborn Through Me, on which Phil Anselmo can be heard whispering, just. Tremendously painful fun. You can almost hear 99.9% of the world's population moaning in disgust. Next up, we have the album Antichrist Superstar by Marilyn Manson. Reviewed by Liam Charles, this one gets 4Ks. Don't, whatever you do, expose yourself to Antichrist Superstar if you're already feeling a tad cheesed off with your lot. If you do, you'll top yourself for sure, doubtless egged on by the cheery little nuggets of homespun wisdom that Marilyn Manson liked to throw at you every now and then. Everyone will suffer now, you can't save yourself warns Little Horn, while 1996 happily reminds us all that the world is an ashtray, there's not much left to love. Love is not a word that features strongly on Antichrist Superstar, though death Dying, pain and suffering get mentioned an awful lot. And to think, these cheerful bastards hail from South Florida, America's retirement capital. Try as you might, you cannot imagine anything this miserably deviant crawling out of Eastbourne. Seriously though, this is an incredible sounding album, but it is an unremittingly black-hearted, all-shade, no-light affair, and that, together with the image like cradle of filth after a rummage through the dressing-up box, will put some people off. But put these two minor quibbles aside and there's much to enjoy. Opening shot, irresponsible hate machine, for example, rides in on a bucking bronco of a riff and delivers a stinging and forceful indictment of intolerance in its ugliest form. I hate the hater, I rape the raper, everyone is somebody's nigger. While The Beautiful People is quirky enough to be a hit, were it not for the fact that it contains more fucks than a Swedish art movie. The mark producer Trent Reznor is all over Antichrist Superstar, so much so that he's going to have one hell of a mountain to climb better than this when he goes back to his day job. There's so much techno doodly uh, crammed into this busy little sucker that you'd swear it must have taken about a decade and a half to record. But each time the electro sound garden looks like becoming overgrown, some razor sharp guitar shows up for a bit of a prune, slicing through the synthetic undergrowth like Freddy Krueger's fingernails. Fittingly, it all winds up a message from Manson himself to Maron and pa. Everything turns to shit, he whispers. The boy who loved me is now the man you fear. Scary. Scarier even than afternoon tea with a pan stick singer's homicidal hippie namesake. Antichrist Superstar is not a record that would be loved by everyone. It has about as much to do with universal appeal as drinking petrol. But Marilyn Manson have created a twisted gargoyle of an album which stands at the front of their dark art. With White Zombie about to take a long holiday, their future looks very, very busy. Next up we have the album Motel California by Ugly Kid Joe. Reviewed by Liam Shells, this one gets 3Ks. Goofy Metal has nowhere left to go. It is an ex-parrot. It has ceased to be. Love, Hate have realised this and are at least trying to tart up their act. Ugly Kid Joe, it would seem, are still labouring under the illusion that there is mileage left in this most unassuming of forms. They always had a tendency to fall between two stalls, never quite knowing when to play it straight or go for laughs, but on Motel California the uh, dichotomy is more sharply pronounced than ever. Here the fact that they've been relieved of their contract with Mercury means that there is no longer a besuited executive letting them know just what they can and can't get away with. The result is profanity-strewn cod comedy like Sandwich. She was a good witch she was a bad witch but all i really wanted was a motherfucking sandwich which sounds no better than green jelly bicycle wheels throw your arms in the air i'd like to see your armpit hair and rage against the answering machine teehee which places an answer phone recording of someone telling whitfield crane he's left his hat over at their place against a random speed metal riff agonizingly unfunny the rest is a tightly executed but thoroughly unspectacular mishmash of funk-tinged West Coast heavy rock, dialogue, father, a couple of ill-conceived stabs at shimmering psychedelia, shine strange and a part-spoken track called Little Red Man, which features an unlikely contribution from one Lemmy Kilminster. Then right in the middle of it all you've got Would You Like To Be There, which while not quite as sensible and grown up as Cats In The Cradle is nevertheless a polished and grandly chorus play for the sophisticated hard rock audience, the people at like Bon Jovi probably reckon they've got all stitched up. It alone earns Motel California a whole extra K. And if ugly kid Joe can smell the coffee and concentrate on this side of their repertoire, they may have a future. Otherwise, the where are they now file is always open. And finally this week, we have the album Anima by Tool. Reviewed by Paul Travers, this one gets 3Ks. A great deal has changed in the four years since the phallically logoed Tool first surfaced with the acclaimed mini-album Opiate. Grunge would appear to be on its last legs, a lot of bands have taken the punky option, and even Metallica have gone rock and roll on us. Tool have responded by going moderately hat-stand. Their trademark heaviness is still there of course, but it's now accompanied by a more experimental approach and a fair amount of weirdness. The album starts in impressive fashion with the bizarrely titled Stink Fist, riding in on an elasticated bass riff and megaphone vocals. The song veers between quiet interludes, where singer Maynard James Keenan sounds like a bizarre cross between Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder and Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull, a noisy bit where he roars in a hugely powerful but strangely characterless voice. Brutally effective guitars come crashing like juggernauts, but his quiet loud, quiet loud structure is repeated throughout the album and becomes more than a little predictable. Second song, Eulogy, starts in a similarly brooding and menacing fashion before turning into a big, fat riffer. It keeps threatening to rise into a crescendo, but each time it starts to build, the guitars are plugged out again, and the volume ebbs away. Message to Harry Manback is a weird track consisting of fret and abuse mumbled over a melancholy lone piano. Die Aja von Saturn places German dialogue over the rhythmic sound of industrial machinery, while Ions is a disconcerting assemblage of sound effects that zip continuously from one speaker to the other. Top cookie in the weirdness stakes, however is Intermission, which is precisely that, the cheesiest organ riff you can imagine placed right in the middle of the album and sounding brilliantly incongruous because of it. The most direct oral assault is Hooker with a Penis, which isn't fast but grinds like a bastard, all rasping vocals and crushing guitars. Just as impressive as the title track, with its insistent angry rhythms and apocalyptic vision, at moments like this tools sound immense, but the momentum is never allowed to build. Push It drowns in a sprawling mess of drugged out riffs, while final track Third Eye seems to go on forever. Guitars spiral over a pulsing beat and there's a Monster Magnet-style Bad Trip vibe, with more weird effects and a sample of a man saying, today, young men on acid realise that all matter is merely energy condensed to a slow vibration. Too obtuse to be labelled classic. And Anima is nevertheless a bold offering from a band who both succeed and fail because of their strangeness. Brave rather than brilliant, good rather than great. Charts and the number one single this week is Kevin Carter, Manic Street Preachers. Number one in the album chart is from the Muddy Banks of the Wishkin Nirvana and number one in the indie LPs is Stoosh by Skunker Nancy. The Reader's Top 10 this week comes from Susie and Pumpkin of Grungeville. Their chart begins 1. Everything by Nirvana 2. 1039 Smoothed Out by Green Day 3. Ratamahata Sepultura 4. Sparkle and Fade Everclear 5. Down on the Upside Soundgarden 6. 10 Pearl Jam 7. Tiny Music Stone Temple Pilots 8. Jimmy Olsen's Blue Spin Doctors 9. MTV Unplugged Alice in Chains, Chains 10. Rush Hour by Joyrider Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues Seven days that shook the UK. Metallica and corrosion inside the poor touring me machine. Corrosive report. Fan speak. Killer posters. Also £25 off top CDs. Corn a day in the life. Danzig Industrial Rock Shop. Plus Silverchair, Cathedral, Floodgate, Mannix, and Reef. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual. Also, look out for another bonus episode of uh, this podcast where we'll be reviewing the Supersonic Volume 2 tape. That should be in your feeds uh, sometime after this one is out. So a few days, probably Sunday, I believe. Uh, Look out for that in your feeds wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you all have a good week and talk to you all soon. Bye for now.